I'm Meg Wallitzer, and I may be the only thing that's not a surprise on this show about things we didn't see coming. A smart mom and a smart home turn the tables in the stories on this week's Selected Shorts. Stick around. We've got really smart Stephen Colbert reading. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Life is full of surprises, sometimes good ones. You don't owe the IRS a penny. Someone wants to give you an award. The doctor says it's just a mole. And sometimes not so good ones. You owe the IRS how much? You got a bad review. Your internet goes out in the middle of your important Zoom presentation. Writers like to surprise their characters once in a while. And on this show, two excellent examples of they didn't see that coming. In the first, a traditional rite of passage, meeting a loved one's parent for the first time, has an added challenge and a twist. In the second, a classic fantasy in which make-believe gets out of hand and without warning the ordinary becomes extraordinary. But sometimes, of course, the reader is surprised too. Not necessarily in an O. Henry way, you know, I sold my hair to buy you a chain for your watch. What? I sold my watch to buy you a brush for your hair. But I mean in a subtler way, when the reader is in the mix with the characters and the element of surprise washes over them all. The story Aguti by Brenda Williams is a contemporary comedy of manners. An independent but somewhat priggish young woman, visiting her fiancé's childhood home and uninhibited mother for the first time, is surprised by her preconceptions. Brenda Williams, an educator as well as a writer, served as director of the Brooklyn-based John Oliver Killen's beginning-slash-intermediate adult writing program, and as a fiction instructor for the Gotham Writers' Workshop. And our reader is the adept Laureen Towler, actor, educator, and activist, whose credits include Medea and The Sopranos. Here she is with Aguti. Aguti. I thought I'd suffocate in the nylon folds of her house dress when she caught me by the elbows and hugged me close. My forehead sunk into her collarbone. Her breasts pillowed my chest. Her sweat, sour as grapefruits, seeped into my clothes, diluted my blood. I had never been that close to a woman that large. A stranger, too. And her affection, her overwhelming ripeness, alarmed me. She kissed me somewhere along my jawline, then held me away to stare at me much too fondly before clasping both hands behind my neck. My new daughter, she said in patois distorted English. Children, come meet your future sister-in-law. They scurried into the hallway like slippery little animals, which I guess they were, with their faces shiny from Vaseline and their skinny arms and legs like twigs under their t-shirts and shorts. The smaller ones' shirts were filthy and sticky from cane juice, mangoes, whatever they ate, and I pitied them immediately. Shame, I thought. Shame to bear so many children only to have them look so. Damned if any man will knock me up when I'm past 40. I was 26. 
Not all of them is mine, my future mother-in-law said, and I jumped deep in my bones, afraid she had read my mind. The two boys is my grandchildren from Josette. You know, Claude's big sister. Then that naughty child there is my one little great niece, Vina. She's four. And the other three? All mine. Praise God for health and strength. Nine, eleven, and thirteen. Claude's little half-sisters, Lord bless him. Where is that boy? I explained that he had returned to the car to get our luggage and turned away from her to face the front door expectantly. I figured he'd come puffing through it soon, all eager to impress his family. He'd been able to visit them only four times in the 14 years since he'd left the island to go to high school in the States. She reopened the front door to look for him, and I felt another sweltering blast from their sun, which really did glow yellow in the day and russet at night, and would sit in your hand if you reached out skyward. Claude had his back to the sky. I could see his white shirt hunched over the car trunk, and above him the corrugated metal roofs glinting like slate on the white stone houses, and the palm trees swaying like we were in some paradise, which we weren't, only Dominica. Come, come now. Abandoning the door, Mums clasped my elbow again like it belonged to her. Come to the kitchen, Valerie. That way I can start dinner while we talk. I got a special dish for you today, girl. A nice, plump, fresh agouti. <laughs> we were barely in the kitchen when the front door slammed. That seemed to be the only way to close it. And I found myself directing prayers toward the noise. Claude, at last, come save me. But I didn't hear any footsteps just his baritone laughter amid delighted hoots and screams. Those children turned to hooligans beneath his tickling fingers. He'll come to you soon, Mom said, telepathic again, <laughs> and looked indulgent and very at home in the tangerine-walled kitchen. There were rags on the floor to sop up some recent spillage, and unnaturally large vegetation on the pine table. Yellow yams, roasted breadfruit, green bananas, a bowl full of processed cassava. Bring me that dish, please, she said, and I obediently reached for the cassava, dusting a giant ant off the rim of the bowl before carrying it toward her. Claude told me your folks is from Jamaica, she said. You ever lived there? No, my parents immigrated to the States long before I was born, but I did go to Jamaica for a vacation once when I was 19. I had intended to place the bowl gently on the draining board, but I must have slammed it down pretty hard because it was cracked after that. I heaved myself backward and waved a finger at the sink cavity. What, what is that? Curled up in the sink was an animal. <laughs> Dead, it seemed, but with everything intact. The long, narrow head with a little evil expression still on it and the four claws stiff and tucked neatly toward the rear. It had some kind of grisly fur, too, dirty brown hairs all over the body and matted slightly over the rump, and so much flesh in that rump and belly. 
The carcass bulged like a giant avocado pear. I would have called it a rat, except that it was too big. It filled the sink, and its mean black eyes stared back at me like it could still bite. Claude strode into the kitchen and immediately embraced his mother, who started to cry as uncontrollably as she had when he first greeted her, before he went out for the luggage. I tried to feel sympathetic. She hadn't seen him since he came home for his stepfather's funeral three years ago. Claudie, she wailed. Claudie, my big son. And her leg of mutton arms locked him in a hug. They stood immobilized in that position for ages until Mums disengaged one arm to beckon me into the embrace. Valerie. I walked reluctantly toward them and asked what was on my mind. There's an animal dead in your sink. What is it? Oh, that's our agouti. I barely managed to swallow my alarm. Really? What is agouti? She hugged me fondly. Agouti is... Agouti, she said. You have never seen agouti before. Claude began to chuckle. Unlikely, he said, and quickly began to update his mother on his life and mine. As a defense attorney, he had perfected the art of manipulating conversations, and he applied his courtroom skills now, giving me no openings to say anything other than, uh-huh, and yes, very nice. I waited several minutes for a lapse in the discussion, at which point I cleared my throat loudly and pointed to the sink. Mmm, a gooty, Claude said quickly and tried to frown down my sour expression. <laughs> Sweetheart, let's go to our room and unpack. Leave Mums to work her kitchen magic. And he gave her bottom a good hard pinch before pulling me out the door. I rediscovered my voice as soon as we got upstairs. That thing's not coming near my plate. Now, I don't want to argue, but I'll tell you this. We're going to eat it, Valerie, you and me both. His decisiveness surprised me. Why? It's my family's gift, and it's more than they can afford to offer right now. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm not eating any rodents today, thank you. <laughs> Do you know how much pride my mother takes in her cooking, he asked. And when I shrugged, he walked to the bed and stood over me. I don't want her to think we've come all the way here and she wasn't able to give us anything. But I don't expect anything, I said. That's not the point, and yes, you do. You expect it to be okay when you place yourself above your own people. We've been through this before, except he usually played the role of commiserator, the one who understood me because he knew firsthand how hard it could be to get by in American society with the trappings of a third world culture on your back. I wasn't raised in the Caribbean like he was, so I just didn't identify with the islanders. I'm my own person. Isn't that my prerogative, Claude, I asked? Not when you're in the Caribbean, it's not. Not when you're with my family. I crossed my arms and considered this new kink in his reasoning, but you can deal with it when I'm not with your family. I'm marrying you, aren't I? He grabbed a towel from a nearby chair. Look, Valerie, I figure you'll deal with your prejudices when you're ready, and that's fine. But while you're here, 
you're going to show my family respect. I told Claude when we were planning the trip that I wouldn't let him make love to me in his mother's house because it was disrespectful. He was suspiciously quick to acquiesce, so I explained to him how I was raised, which he already knew, because whenever we visited my parents in Maryland, my mother made up separate rooms for us with Jesus staring down sorrowfully from <laughs> portraits above the headboards, New Testaments on the pillows, and her bedroom in the middle. <laughs> I stiffened my leg whenever he stroked my thigh under the dinner table locked my door to him at night, and forbade him to wander the halls bare-chested. He never complained, but I'm sure he thought we were pathologically repressed. And I probably confirmed the diagnosis every time I resisted his lures to follow him into the garage. Sweetheart, he would whisper, we won't be in the house. <laughs> Technically. And I could never find a convincing response when he pointed out that my parents wouldn't miss us. To his credit, he showed almost ceremonial attentiveness as he handed me into the van. And he closed the window curtains so we'd have double privacy when we sweated up the vinyl seats. Claude's mother had put us together in the girls' room, temporarily displacing her three daughters and niece. The room contained two sets of bunk beds, and moms had pushed them together and placed a foam mattress across the lower berths for a makeshift double bed. The arrangement mocked my brand of respect, but I salvaged my sense of humor and decided it was just as well. Our rented car was only a compact. <laughs> Claude was in the washroom. I heard him pour water into the enamel basin and wondered whether I would be able to wash myself in the cold water for his sake, whether I could eat balmy that had already been sampled by ants, whether my disdain for island dress, speech, food, and manners was apparent to his mother, whether Claude would ever forgive me if I shamed him before his family. The smell of something burning began to fill the bedroom, so I went to the window, which looked out onto a shared yard area. There was no grass to speak of. What was there was sunburnt into the dust, and right now hosted a little stick fire that Mums was tending to while the children played jump rope, barefoot. I heard Claude breathing behind me in the doorway, not moving, probably staring at me, maybe wondering whether we needed to continue the argument. Claude, I said, your mother has a fire going. Is there going to be a barbecue? Not. Exactly, he seemed to hesitate. They're burning the hair off the agouti. <laughs> Why? So it will be fit for stewing. I pressed my cheek against the window frame, amazed I hadn't noticed the long brown mass in the middle of the flame. Each time Mums poked it with her stick, the carcass lurched, and the head snapped back and forth into obscenely contorted positions made possible by the way its throat had been cut. And I noticed the smell again, different now that I knew what it was, more pungent and fetid enough to unsettle my lunch. This was the second time I felt suffocated during the trip. I asked Claude to take me outdoors for a walk while Mums finished preparing the meal. 
You could offer to help her, he said. Tomorrow, I answered, and he didn't press me. As we passed the kitchen, I tried not to notice the enormous black pot boiling frantically. I hurried ahead to the front door, but Claude dallied behind to tease his sisters. He kept me waiting for almost 10 minutes, and I was astonished at how humble I felt, like an outcast standing alone. Claude boasted slyly that he'd teach me the Caribbean's most vital survival secrets by the end of our walk and launched into his lesson. He told me how to turn certain seaweed into a milky aphrodisiac drink, how to put a leash on a crab I wanted to become my pet, how to fatten a manicou for slaughter by feeding it ripe bananas, how to turn soursop pulp into a tasty drink, how to extract powder from cassava water and use it to starch clothes. He seemed intent on making each task sound magical, as if he believed his words would charm me. You can control a manicou by grabbing its tail. It has this long spine that's so stiff it can't turn back on itself to bite you. He glanced at me sideways, then added, the manicou is a kind of cousin to the agouti you know. I made a lame and belated peace offering. It must be a special dish to be worth so much work. <laughs> Mom's glad to do it. It's still a big production. He sat beside me on a splintered bench and cupped my knee with one hand. Yes, although we agreed, that's not the real issue. Respect, I said. He amended, consideration. Have I really been so rude? He kissed my cheek. Don't fret. A little more warmth in your smile, a good meal in your belly, and we'll be all set. I didn't agree to eat it, I said. There are lots of other ways to show goodwill. Sure. Did your mother say something about my attitude? It's okay. I told her you were nervous. Claude said a dutiful grace from the head of the table, while I watched from the opposite end between Mom's and Vina. We had barely said amen when arms started colliding across the table as they reached for the white serving dishes filled with rice and peas, green bananas, breadfruit and yams, a bowl piled up with spinach-like callaloo. The only plate they didn't touch was the one I dreaded, the one that Mom's guarded a platter of steak-like meat smothered in steaming onions and carrots and a spicy gravy. I tried to protect my plate with my hand when Mums threatened me with a heaping serving spoonful of stew. Just a little for me, thanks, I said, adding the polite lie, I usually don't eat meat. <laughs> no, she said, but thankfully emptied only half of the monster spoonful onto my plate before giving the remainder to Doris. I noticed Claude watching me from the other end of the table and was glad when Gladys and Sarah Lynn, the 11 and 13-year-olds, asked him to settle an argument they were having. The breadfruit was delicious, firm and nutty, and I'd almost finished the callaloo. The little pieces of meat were beginning to look lonely on my plate. No one remarked upon the unevenness of my appetite, but 
Eventually, Vina reached over to my dinner and pointed to the stew with one finger, looking up at me. Mums slapped her hand. Don't point in people's food, she said, and returned her attention to her own plate. Valerie don't eat much meat. I felt ashamed. My share of the agouti was fleshy and boneless, but the girls' portions were threaded with crooked, tiny ribs that suggested something ominous about agouti physiology. <laughs> I speared a lean piece and put it in my mouth. The meat was soft as bread, but had a rank, rabbity flavor that the savory spices couldn't quite disinfect. I didn't like it. <laughs> Even if it had tasted great, I, I couldn't have liked it. The, the cooked flesh of a rodent, and it was in my mouth. <laughs> Peeking up from my plate, I saw Claude had stopped chewing and was glaring at me. Maybe everyone was. The only person not paying attention was Mums. I leaned toward her. Mums, I said, but I was unintelligible. My mouth was still full, the gravy diluted by warm saliva I could not swallow. What's the matter, child? I pressed my hands to my lips and stared miserably at the tablecloth while the meat turned trashy on my tongue. Are you sick? I swallowed enough of the juice to permit a full confession, which I whispered into my blouse. I can't eat the agouti. She looked at my miserable face, one cheek bulging and crescents of water pooling in my eyes before looking over at her fuming son. What are you staring at, Claude, she asked, startling him before turning to me and holding a tissue to my mouth. Spit, she said. And I did. Better now? Yes. And I was better, but at the same time, stunned and mortified by how easily she had settled my dilemma. She waved everyone back to their meals, and when they were eating again, tapped me on the wrist. Why you eat it if you don't like it? I felt too humiliated to speak. But it didn't matter because she was looking at her son. I taught American girls could hold their own against men. You got to handle him better than that, she said. Lord Jesus. And she started to laugh. <laughs> Lorraine Towler performed Agouti by Brenda Williams. I'm Meg Wallitzer. We've featured other stories on this show where food is a test, a rite of passage, a visible and edible line of demarcation. But what gives this story its charm is the twist that no one saw coming. And I also love the way Williams shows us how a person's anxiety and pressure about being seen a certain way can engulf them. The woman in this story could have been a lot easier on herself. It's good to remind yourself that sometimes when you're faced with your own version of agouti, you can just say no. When we return, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, from Ray Bradbury. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide.
Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. This show features two stories in which characters do not anticipate the outcome of their particular narratives. Of course, all great fiction offers something unexpected. Drop by our website, selectedshorts.org, for our latest shows, each with its own particular surprise. Link to our podcast and find information about our anthology, Small Odysseys. On this show, we're talking about the unanticipated, things you didn't see coming. And if ever there was a master of the unexpected, it's Ray Bradbury. In his many speculative works, the late science fiction writer and humanist used imaginary worlds and landscapes to interrogate the values of our own. His works include The Martian Chronicles, Fahrenheit 451, and many short stories. In the story we're about to hear, The Velt, his targets are complacency and consumerism. What could be more familiar and surprise-proof than the family room in a comfortable middle-class house, even though the house exists in the future? Our reader Stephen Colbert has done his fair share of questioning social norms and delivering the unexpected on shows like The Late Show and books including I Am America and So Can You. Here he is with Ray Bradbury's The Velt. The Velt. George, I wish you'd look at the nursery. What's wrong with it? I don't know. Well, then. I just want you to look at it, is all, and call a psychologist in to look at it. What would a psychologist want with the nursery? You know very well what he'd want. His wife paused in the middle of the kitchen and watched the stove busily humming to itself, making supper for four. It's just that the nursery is different now than it was. All right, let's have a look. They walked down the hall of their soundproofed happy life home, which had cost them $30,000 installed. This house which clothed and fed and rocked them to sleep and played and sang and was good to them. Their approach sensitized a switch somewhere and the nursery light flicked on when they came within 10 feet of it. Similarly, behind them in the halls, Lights went on and off as they left them behind with a soft automaticity. Well, said George Hadley. They stood on the thatched floor of the nursery. It was 40 feet across by 40 feet long and 30 feet high. It had cost half again as much as the rest of the house, but nothing's too good for our children, George had said. The nursery was silent. It was as empty as a jungle glade at hot high noon. The walls were blank and two-dimensional. Now, as George and Lydia Hadley stood in the center of the room, the walls began to purr and recede into crystalline distance, it seemed. And presently, an African veldt appeared in three dimensions on all sides, in color reproduced to the final pebble and bit of straw. The ceiling above them became a deep sky with a hot yellow sun. George Hadley felt the perspiration start on his brow. Let's get out of this sun, he said. It's a little too real, but uh, I don't say anything wrong. Wait a moment, you'll see, said his wife. Now the hidden odorophonics were beginning to blow a wind of odor at the two people in the middle of the baked Veltland. The hot straw smell of lion grass, the cool green smell of the hidden waterhole, the great rusty smell of animals, the smell of dust like a red paprika in the hot air. And now the sounds, 
the thump of distant antelope feet on grassy sod, the papery rustling of vultures. A shadow passed through the sky. The shadow flickered on George Hadley's upturned, sweating face. Filthy creatures, he heard his wife say. Vultures? You see, there are the lions, far over that way. Now they're on their way to the waterhole. They've just been eating, said Lydia. I don't know what. Some animal. George Hadley put his hand up to shield off the burning light from his squinted eyes. A zebra or a baby giraffe, maybe. Are you sure? His wife sounded peculiarly tense. No, it's a little late to be sure, he said, amused. Nothing I can see over there but cleaned bone and the vultures dropping for what's left. Did you hear that scream? She asked. No. About a minute ago. Sorry, no. <laughs> the lions were coming. And again, George Hadley was filled with admiration for the mechanical genius who had conceived this room, a miracle of efficiency selling for an absurdly low price. Every home should have one. Oh, occasionally they frightened you with their clinical accuracy. They startled you, gave you a twinge, but most of the time, what fun for everyone, not only for your own son and daughter, but for yourself as well, when you felt like a quick jaunt to a foreign land, a quick change of scenery. Well, here it was. And here were the lions now, 15 feet away, so real, so feverishly and startlingly real that you could feel the prickling fur on your hand, and your mouth was stuffed with the dusty upholstery smell of their heated pelts, and the yellow of them was in your eyes like the yellow of an exquisite French tapestry, the yellow of lions and summer grass, and the sound of the matted lion lungs exhaling on the silent noontide and the smell of meat from the panting, dripping mouths. The lion stood looking at George and Lydia Hadley with terrible green-yellow eyes. Watch out, screamed Lydia. The lions were running at them. Lydia bolted and ran. Instinctively, George sprang after her. Outside in the hall with the door slammed, he was laughing and she was crying, and they both stood appalled at the other's reaction. George, Lydia. <laughs> Oh, my poor, sweet Lydia. They almost got us. Walls, Lydia. Remember, crystal walls, that's all they are. Oh, they look real, I must admit. Africa in your parlor. But it's all dimensional, super reactionary, super sensitive color film and mental tape film behind glass screens. It's all odor of phonics and sonics, Lydia. Here's my handkerchief. I'm afraid. She came to him and put her body against him and cried steadily, Did you see? Did you feel it? It's too real. Now, Lydia, you've got to tell Wendy and Peter not to read any more on Africa. Of course. Of course. He patted her. Promise? Sure. And lock the nursery for a few days until my nerves get settled? You know how difficult Peter is about that. When I punished him a month ago by locking the nursery even for a few hours, the tantrum he threw. And Wendy, too. They live for the nursery. It's got to be locked. That's all there is to it. All right. Reluctantly, he locked the huge door. You've been working too hard. You need a rest. I don't know. I don't know, she said, blowing her nose, sitting down in a chair that immediately began to rock and comfort her. <laughs> Maybe I don't have enough to do... Maybe I have too much time to think. Why don't we shut the whole house off for a few days and take a vacation? 
You mean you want to fry eggs for me? Yes. She nodded. Darn my socks? Yes. A frantic, watery-eyed nodding and sweep the house? Yes, yes, oh yes! But I thought that's why we bought this house, so we wouldn't have to do anything. Well, that's just it. I, I don't feel like I belong here. This house is wife and mother now and nursemaid. Can I compete with an African veldt? Can I give a bath and scrub the children as efficiently or as quickly as the automatic scrub bath can? I cannot. And it isn't just me, it's you. You've been awfully nervous lately. Suppose I have been smoking too much. You look as if you don't know what to do with yourself in this house either. You smoke a little more every morning and drink a little more every afternoon and you need a little more sedative every night. You're beginning to feel unnecessary too. Am I? He paused and tried to feel inside of himself to see what was really there. Oh, George. She looked beyond him at the nursery door. Those lines can't get out of there, can they? He looked at the door and saw it tremble as if something had jumped against it from the other side. Of course not, he said. At dinner they ate alone, for Wendy and Peter were at a special plastic carnival across town and had televised home to say that they'd be late to go ahead eating. So George Hadley, bemused, sat watching the dining room table produce warm dishes of food from its mechanical interior. We forgot the ketchup. He said, Sorry. <laughs> said a small voice within the table, and ketchup appeared. <laughs> As for the nursery, thought George Hadley, it wouldn't hurt for the children to be locked out of it for a while. Too much of anything isn't good for anyone, and it was clearly indicated that the children had been spending a little too much time on Africa. That sun. He could feel it on his neck still, like a hot paw and the lions and the smell of blood. Remarkable how the nursery caught the telepathic emanations of the children's minds and created life to fill their every desire. The children thought lions and there were lions. The children thought zebras and there were zebras. Sun, sun, giraffe, giraffe, death and death. That last. He chewed tastelessly on the meat that the table had cut for him. Death thoughts, they were awfully young. Wendy and Peter for death thoughts. Or, no, you were never too young, really. Long before you knew what death was, you were wishing it on someone else. When you were two years old, you were shooting people with cap pistols. But this, the long, hot African veldt, the awful death in the jaws of a lion, and repeated again and again? Where are you going? He didn't answer Lydia. Preoccupied, he let the lights glow softly on ahead of him, extinguished behind him as he padded to the nursery door. He listened against it. Far away, a lion roared. He unlocked the door and opened it. Just before he stepped inside, he heard a faraway scream, and then another roar from the lions, which subsided quickly. He stepped into Africa. How many times in the last year had he opened this door and found Wonderland, Alice, the Mock Turtle, or Aladdin and his magic lamp, or Jack Pumpkinhead of Oz, or Dr. Doolittle, or the cow jumping over a very real-appearing moon, all the delightful contraptions of a make-believe world? How often had he seen Pegasus flying in the sky ceiling, or seen fountains of red fireworks, or heard angel voices singing? But now, this yellow-hot Africa 
this bake oven with murder in the heat. Perhaps Letty was right. Perhaps they needed a little vacation from the fantasy which was growing a bit too real for 10-year-old children. It was all right to exercise one's mind with gymnastic fantasies, but when the lively child mind settled on one pattern, it seemed that at a distance for the past month he had heard lions roaring and smelled their strong odor seeping as far away as his study door. But being busy, he had paid it no attention. George Hadley stood on the African grasslands alone. The lions looked up from their feeding, watching him. The only flaw in the illusion was the open door through which he could see his wife far down the hall like a framed picture eating her dinner abstractedly. Go away, he said to the lions. They did not go. He knew the principle of the room exactly. You sent out your thoughts, whatever you thought would appear. Let's have Aladdin and his lamp, he snapped. The Veltlin remained. The lions remained. Come on, room, I demand Aladdin, he said. Nothing happened. The lions mumbled in their baked pelts. Aladdin! <laughs> he went back to dinner. The full room's out of order, he said. It won't respond. Or, or what? Or it can't respond, said Lydia, because the children have thought about Africa and the lions and killing so many days that the room's in a rut. Well, could be. Or Peter said it to remain that way. Said it? He may have got into the machinery and fixed something. Peter doesn't know machinery. He's a wise one for ten. That IQ of his, nevertheless. Hello, Mom. Hello, Dad. The Hadleys turned. Wendy and Peter were coming in the front door, cheeks like peppermint candy, eyes like bright blue agate marbles, the smell of ozone on their jumpers from their trip in the helicopter. You're just in time for supper, said both parents. We're full of strawberry ice cream and hot dogs, said the children, holding hands, but we'll sit and watch. Come tell us about the nursery, said George Hadley. The brother and sister blinked at him and then at each other. Nursery? All about Africa and everything, said the father with false joviality. I don't understand, said Peter. Your mother and I were just traveling through Africa with Rod and Reel, Tom Swift and his electric lion said George Hadley. There's no Africa in the nursery, said Peter simply. Oh, come now, Peter, we know better. I don't remember any Africa, said Peter to Wendy. Do you? No. Run see and come tell. She obeyed. Wendy, come back here, said George Hadley, but she was gone. The house lights followed her like a flock of fireflies. Too late he realized he had forgotten to lock the nursery door after his last inspection. When do you look and come tell us, said Peter. She doesn't have to tell me. I've seen it. I'm sure you're mistaken, Father. I'm not, Peter. Come along now. But Wendy was back. It's not Africa, she said breathlessly. We'll see about this, said George Hadley, and they all walked down the hall together and opened the nursery door. There was a green, lovely forest, a lovely river, a purple mountain, high voices singing, and Rima lovely and mysterious, lurking in the trees with colorful flights of butterflies like animated bouquets lingering in her long hair. The African Veltlin was gone. The lions were gone. Only Rima was there now, singing a song so beautiful that it brought tears to your eyes. George Hadley looked in at the changed scene. 
Go to bed, he said to the children. They opened their mouths. You heard me, he said. They went off to the air closet where the wind sucked them like brown leaves up the flue to their slumber rooms. <laughs> George Hadley walked through the singing glade and picked up something that lay in the corner near where the lions had been. He walked slowly back to his wife. What is that? she asked. An old wallet of mine, he said. He showed it to her. The smell of hot grass was on it and the smell of a lion. There were drops of saliva on it. It had been chewed and there were blood smears on both sides. He closed the nursery door and locked it tight. In the middle of the night, he was still awake and he knew his wife was awake. Do you think Wendy changed it? She said at last in the dark room, of course. Made it from a veldt into a forest and put Rima there instead of the lions. Yes. Why? I don't know, but it's staying locked until I find out. How did your wallet get there? I don't know anything, he said, except that I'm beginning to be sorry that we bought that room for the children. If the children are neurotic at all, a room like that, it's supposed to help them work off their neuroses in a healthful way. I'm starting to wonder. He stared at the ceiling. We've given the children everything they ever wanted. Is this our reward, secrecy, disobedience? Who said it? Children are carpets. They should be stepped on occasionally. <laughs> We've never lifted a hand. They're insufferable. Let's admit it. They come and go when they like. They treat us as if we were offspring. They're spoiled and we're spoiled. They've been acting very funny ever since you forbade them to take the rocket to New York a few months ago. They're not old enough to do that alone, I explained. Nevertheless, I've noticed they've been decidedly cool toward us since. I think I'll have David McLean come tomorrow morning and have a look at Africa. But it's not Africa now. It's Green Mansion's country in Rima. I have a feeling it'll be Africa again before then. A moment later, they heard the screams. Two screams. Two people screaming from downstairs. And then a roar of lions. Wendy and Peter aren't in their rooms, said his wife. He lay in his bed with his beating heart. Nope, he said. They've broken into the nursery. Those screams, they sound familiar. Do they? Yes, awfully. And although their beds tried very hard, the two adults couldn't be rocked to sleep for another hour. A smell of cats was in the night air. Father, said Peter, yes? Peter looked down at his shoes. He never looked at his father anymore, nor at his mother. You aren't going to lock up the nursery for good, are you? Well, that all depends. On what? Snapped Peter. On you and your sister. If you intersperse this Africa with a little variety, oh, Sweden perhaps, or Denmark, or China, I thought we were free to play as we wished. You are within reasonable bounds. What's wrong with Africa, father? Oh, so now you admit you've been conjuring up Africa, do you? I wouldn't want the nursery locked up, said Peter coldly, ever. As a matter of fact, we're thinking of turning the whole house off for about a month, live sort of a carefree, one-for-all existence. That sounds dreadful. Why, I would have to tie my shoes instead of letting the shoe tire do it, and brush my own teeth and comb my hair and give myself a bath. It would be fun for a change, don't you think? No, it would be horrid. I didn't like it when you took out the picture painter last month. That's because I wanted you to learn to paint all by yourself, son. I don't want to do anything but look and listen and smell. What else is there to do? All right, go play in Africa.
Will you shut off the house sometime soon? We're considering it. I don't think you'd better consider it anymore, Father. I won't have any threats from my son. Very well. And Peter strolled off to the nursery. Am I on time? Said David McLean. Breakfast? Said George Hadley. Thanks, had some. What's the trouble? David, you're a psychologist. I should hope so. Well, then have a look at our nursery. You saw it a year ago when you dropped by. Did you notice anything peculiar about it then? Can't say that I did. The usual violences, a tendency toward a slight paranoia here and there, usual in children because they feel persecuted by parents constantly, but oh, really nothing. They walked down the hall. I locked the nursery up, explained the father. And the children broke back into it during the night, and I let them stay so they could form the patterns for you to see. There was a terrible screaming from the nursery. Here it is said George Hadley. See what you make of it. They walked in on the children without rapping. The screams had faded. The lions were feeding. Run outside a moment, children, said George Hadley. No, don't change the mental combination. Leave the walls as they are. Get. With the children gone, the two men stood studying the lions clustered at a distance, eating with great relish whatever it is they had caught. I wish I knew what it was, said George Hadley. Sometimes I can almost see... Do you think if I brought high-powered binoculars here and David McLean laughed dryly? <laughs> Hardly. He turned to study all four walls. How long has this been going on? A little over a month. Certainly doesn't feel good. I want facts, not feelings. My dear George, a psychologist never saw a fact in his life. He only hears about feelings, vague things. This doesn't feel good, I tell you. Trust my hunches and my instincts. I have a nose for something bad. This is very bad. <laughs> my advice to you is to have the whole damn room torn down and your children brought to me every day during the next year for treatment. <laughs> is it that bad? I'm afraid so. One of the original uses for these nurseries was so that we could study the patterns left on the walls by the child's mind, study at our leisure and help the child. In this case, however, the room has become a channel toward destructive thoughts instead of a release away from them. Didn't you sense this before? I sensed only that you had spoiled your children more than most, and now you're letting them down in some way. What way? I wouldn't let them go to New York. What else? I've taken a few machines from the house and threatened them a month ago with closing up the nursery unless they did their homework. I did close it for a few days to show I meant business. Aha! Does that mean something? Everything! Where before they had a Santa Claus, now they have a Scrooge. Children prefer Santas. You've let this room and this house replace you and your wife and your children's affections. This room is their mother and father, far more important in their lives than their real parents, and now you come along and want to shut it off. No wonder there's hatred here. You can feel it coming out of the sky. Feel that sun. George, you'll have to change your life. Like too many others, you've built it around creature comforts. Why, you'd starve tomorrow if something went wrong with your kitchen. You wouldn't know how to tap an egg. Nevertheless, turn everything off. Start new. It'll take time, but we'll make good children out of bad in a year. Wait and see. But won't the shock be too much for the children shutting the room up abruptly for good? I don't want them going any deeper into this, that's all. The lions were finishing with their red feast. 
The lions were standing on the edge of the clearing watching the two men. Now I'm feeling persecuted, said McLean. Let's get out of here. I never cared for these damn rooms. Make me nervous. Lions look real, don't they? said George Hadley. I don't suppose there's any way... What? That they could become real. Not that I know. Some flaw in the machinery, a tampering or something. No. They went to the door. I don't imagine the room will like being turned off, said the father. Nothing ever likes to die, even a room. I wonder if it hates me for wanting to switch it off. Paranoia is thick around here today, said David McLean. You can follow it like a spore. Hello. He bent and picked up a bloody scarf. This yours? No. George Hadley's face went rigid. It belongs to Lydia. They went to the fuse box together and threw the switch that killed the nursery. The two children were in hysterics. They screamed and pranced and threw things. They yelled and sobbed and swore and jumped at the furniture. You can't do that to the nursery. You can't. Now, children, the children flung themselves onto the couch, weeping. George, said Lydia Hadley, turn on the nursery just for a few moments. You can't be so abrupt. No. You can't be so cruel. Lydia, it's off and it stays off. And the whole damn house dies as of here and now. The more I see of this mess we've put ourselves in, the more it sickens me. We've been contemplating our mechanical, electronic navels for too long. My God, how we need a breath of honest air. And he marched about the house, turning off the voice clocks, the stoves, the heaters, the shoe shiners, the shoe lacers, the body scrubbers and swabbers and massagers, and every other machine he could put his hand to. The house was full of dead bodies, it seemed. It felt like a mechanical cemetery, so silent. None of the humming, hidden energy of machines waiting to function at the tap of a button. Don't let them do it! wailed Peter at the ceiling as if he was talking to the house, the nursery. Don't let father kill everything. He turned to his father. Oh, I hate you. Insults won't get you anywhere. I wish you were dead. We were for a long while. Now we're going to really start living. Instead of being handled and massaged, we're going to live. Wendy was still screaming, and Peter joined her again. Just a moment, just one moment, just another moment of nursery, they wailed. Oh, George, said the wife, it can't hurt. All right, all right, if we'll just shut up. One minute, mind you, then off forever. Daddy, 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 sang the children, smiling with wet faces. And then we're going on vacation. David McLean is coming back in half an hour to help us move out and get to the airport. I'm going to dress. You turn on the nursery for a minute, Lydia. Just a minute, mind you. And the three of them went babbling off while he let himself be vacuumed upstairs through the air flue and set about dressing himself. A minute later, Lydia appeared. I'll be glad when we get away, she sighed. Did you leave them in the nursery? I wanted to dress too. Oh, that horrid Africa. What can they see in it? Well, in five minutes, we'll be on our way to Iowa. Lord, how did we ever get in this house? What prompted us to buy a nightmare? Pride. Money. Foolishness. I think we'd better get downstairs before those kids get engrossed with those damn beasts again. 
Just then they heard the children calling, Daddy, Mommy, come quick, quick. They went downstairs and the air flew and ran down the hall. The children were nowhere in sight. Wendy? Peter? They ran into the nursery. The Veltlin was empty save for the lions waiting, looking at them. Peter? Wendy? The door slammed. Wendy? Peter? George Hadley and his wife whirled and ran back to the door. Open the door, cried George Hadley, trying the knob. Why, they've locked it from the outside. Peter! He beat at the door. Open up! He heard Peter's voice outside the door. Don't let them switch off the nursery in the house, he was saying. Mr. and Mrs. George Hadley beat at the door. Now don't be ridiculous, children. It's time to go. Mr. McLean will be here in a minute, and... And then they heard the sounds. The lions on three sides of them in the yellow velt grass, padding through the dry straw, rumbling and roaring in their throats. The lions. Mr. Hadley looked at his wife and they turned and looked back at the beasts, edging slowly forward, crouching, tails stiff. Mr. and Mrs. Hadley screamed. And suddenly, they realized why those other screams had sounded familiar. Well, here I am, said David McLean in the nursery doorway. Oh, hello. He stared at the two children seated in the center of the open glade, eating a little picnic lunch. Beyond them was the water hole and the yellow veltlin. Above was the hot sun. He began to perspire. Where are your father and mother? The children looked up and smiled. Oh, they'll be here directly. Good, we must be going. At a distance, Mr. McLean saw the lions fighting and clawing and then quieting down to feed in silence under the shady trees. He squinted at the lions with his hand tipped to his eyes. Now the lions were done feeding. They moved to the waterhole to drink. A shadow flickered over Mr. McLean's hot face. Many shadows flickered. The vultures were dropping down the blazing sky. A cup of tea? asked Wendy in the silence. Stephen Colbert performed The Velt by Ray Bradbury. And when it was published in 1950, it must have seemed like the distant future. But today, in a world dominated by chatbots, video games, and smart homes gently managed by Siri or Alexa, we are only a breath away from the event that no one sees coming. I've talked sometimes on this show about the innocence of children. I'm a mother and now a grandmother myself. And as a writer, I see the power of artistically putting that innocence at risk or having it speak truth to power. But in The Velt, Ray Bradbury exposes another side of innocence, its ruthlessness. Children can be selfish and self-regarding, and like Meg Ryan's character in When Harry Met Sally, they can just want it when they want it. And we don't see that quietly horrible ending coming. So, two stories in which the characters have their assumptions overturned. Each locates us in familiar territory, a first meeting with a future relative, a self-satisfied family defined more by acquisition than affection, and then unanticipated endings, comically generous in the case of Aguti, eerily fatal in the Velt. 
One thing about life is that it is filled with things we don't see coming. Fiction is similar, but in the hands of a good writer, those unanticipated events take on some kind of meaning or at least shape. I, too, have been faced with food that I didn't want to eat and was too afraid to do anything about. If you must know, it was a meat-filled cassoulet served to me, a young vegetarian, by the novelist Donald Barthelme. I'm sure it was as delicious as his work was brilliant, but it was wasted on me. And while I never had the chance to trap my parents on a veldt with hungry lions, I did once play a trick on my hungry father, in which I took a rock from the backyard, put it on his plate, and told him it was a baked potato. In writing about surprise, both Brenda Williams and Ray Bradbury also explore power and powerlessness, which are durable themes for short stories. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivian Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Mie Hirschfeld. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Macmillan Family Foundation, the Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members, who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. Music